Welcome back to Why the Flick, a podcast where two friends and former journalists take on a new movie each week and ask the hard-hitting questions. I'm Claire. I'm Elizabeth. And this week we are discussing Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone because it is the 20th anniversary, guys. We are excited. We talk about how they brought Harry Potter to life. You can also find out our Hogwarts houses. We talk about the age-old battle of good versus evil, as well as the real meaning behind Quidditch. And of course, we'll share our Why the Flick moments. So enjoy. So Claire, tell me, why did you pick this flick? So I chose this movie because a very, very, very important anniversary is happening this year. Uh, It is the 20th anniversary of when Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone released in 2001. Crazy. I can't believe it's been 20 years. That makes me feel really old. (laughs) I can't believe 2001 was 20 years ago. That's what I can't believe. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um. But yeah, I was like, we only have one more week of 2021 by the time this episode comes out. Uh, So, you know, thought I'd I'd get it in while I could. There's also going to be a special on HBO Max on January 1st for all the cast reunites. So definitely like timely and can check that out. It is also Christmas week, guys. Very early Christmas. Merry Christmas. Uh, even though I don't think this is necessarily a Christmas movie, I think it's... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it is not, Claire. Okay? If Last Christmas is not a Christmas movie, Harry Potter is not. We're not going to continue this argument okay. anymore. Okay. All right. Um, but I do think it's enjoyable to watch during Christmas time. And I am wearing an ugly Christmas sweater uh, in honor of the season. So I guess... This- I- wearing an ugly sweater (laughs) just ugly no Christmas (laughs) yeah I forgot to be festive sorry guys um so I know we usually come up with our own descriptions for these movies so I wrote one myself this time um and would you care to take a listen I would okay an orphan boy named Harry makes a life-changing discovery when he finds out he's a wizard After being accepted into a school for magic, he spends his time making friends, learning spells, and flying on broomsticks. But the more Harry dives into the wizarding world, the more he uncovers the dark history of his past and the secrets behind the walls of Hogwarts. Damn, girl! (laughs) That was good! Yay! (laughs) I feel like I'd read that, like, on the official Harry Potter website, like... I know, that should be the IMDb description. Yeah, who writes those? Well, I guess they just pull them from like the production companies. I just had it for a second. I I just imagine like that's someone's full-time job writing IMDb descriptions. If I could get paid for that, that would be a fun side gig. That's what I'm saying. You could do it. You got the chops. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) I only spent like a half hour on that, but hey, you know. (laughs) So I wanted to ask you, Elizabeth, just to start off, if, if you have read the books and if you did when did you read them um so you'll find out on this podcast that my memory is shit <laughs> I don't remember when I read them I don't remember the first time I watched Harry Potter but it was not like 
when it came out, when the books came out or the movie came out. Like I was a little um, late in jumping on the bandwagon. Um, I read all of the books up until like five and then I never <laughs> continued. <laughs> um, and obviously I've seen all the movies. So your assignment after we get done with this is to mm. reread all of them and finish it. Claire, you and I both know it's not going to happen. <laughs> Although I will say, I like in the past year or two, I did sit down um, with Sorcerer's Stone again, didn't finish it. That's been the story of my reading journey for the past couple of years. Um, <laughs> but it really is such an easy, fun read. And like, just it's still such an escape. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, like for me personally, I grew up with Harry Potter. I started with the books and I didn't start reading Harry Potter, I think, until the fourth one came out. I was one of those kids who was like, everybody else is reading it. I'm not going to read it. And then I ended up reading the first book and like I was instantly hooked. Um, so yeah, like, and then by the time the last book came out, I was 17. So I really felt like I, as the, they grew up, I grew up. It was you just did. like a neat experience. Yeah. yeah. So you start reading the books before the movies came out. Yeah. What was it like for you then after reading them for a few years and then seeing it on screen and seeing it come to life? I, so yeah, I mean, I remember really loving the movie when I first saw it. I think it was, it was so 2000, uh, 2001, I was 11. Um, and this might sound corny, but it was like magical. I mean, I loved getting to see everything get brought to life. Like you do your best to picture it in your mind as best you can from the books. But then when you see it in real life, you're just in awe, especially like as a kid, you know, seeing it all get brought to life and seeing it become real. It felt real to me. Did you like get in line on movie premiere night and dress in robes and like get into it so I didn't do that with the movies but I did do that with the books I guess you could say like I was a potterhead because I would dress up and go to the midnight book releases at Barnes and Noble sweet right? Claire that's so cute <laughs> uh, it was the best and I remember being um, actually, it was like a group of us who went, um, I think it was for the sixth book and somebody like shouted out in the parking lot, spoiler alert, um, Dumbledore dies. And we were all like, what? And we hadn't read it yet. And we didn't believe him, but then obviously it happened. So it, that was kind of, uh, upsetting, but yeah, I mean, I love getting to go to the midnight book releases and getting my book picked out and, getting to read Harry Potter and then talking about it with my friends. Um, and like, even now and as an adult, like we've done Harry Potter trivia, like it's still ingrained, I think in our culture today. Yeah, I definitely, like I said, I, I watched the movies. I didn't read the books first. I watched the movies first and I don't remember what year, but it was definitely somewhat removed from uh, when everything first came out. And I always loved them so much, but it wasn't like ingrained in you quite as much as some of my other friends, uh, including you. So I think on trivia night, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not as helpful. Um, but didn't someone, cause they've had college classes dedicated to Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. I feel like who, did one of our friends take a Harry Potter class? Somebody did. Yeah. No, I think somebody did. I think my college might've even offered a course, uh, in Harry Potter for a semester, but I like couldn't work it out with my schedule to take it. And it's like one of those classes where like you have to sign up for it pretty instantly. Otherwise it's going to be gone. 
but yeah, so there's definitely been something out there. Um, like I've been to Wizarding World, Harry Potter World, yeah. whatever you want to call it. I've been to that twice. Um, I went to get a wand, like I went to Ollivander's. I ended up um actually getting picked to be the person who like goes through the experience. Um, even though I was like 27 years old and I was like, there's like <laughs> all these other kids here. Can you pick someone else? But yeah, I mean, it was still fun. I I want a picture of this. I want a video of this. Oh, which I was going to ask if there's any mm-hmm. pictures of like young Claire. Oh, there like, might be. I'd line. have to do some digging. Yeah. 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 I'll have to see. Um, I do know there's a video of the wand experience. I might show okay. you at um, some point. You for sure. <laughs> Immediately after we're finished tonight, <laughs> you need to send that to me. Uh, I will. But yeah, I, mean, I think of like all of the movies, this one fails the most book accurate to me, which is usually like pretty important to me. Um, I like when movies don't diverge too far from the books. So, and it's, I think it's pretty easy to make this one book accurate because this is literally the shortest book of the series. So really they were able to use almost everything uh, adapted to the movie that is. Right. So I think uh, to, before we like get too much more into this conversation, I think we have to talk about something really important. Um, it's kind of unfortunately not fun to talk about. It's like the elephant in the room, but I think it's something that we need to address. And it's really J.K. Rowling and the controversy around she's the author of the, the Harry Potter books. Um, I do want to give like a trigger warning because that we're going to be talking about transphobia uh, in this part. But if for some reason you don't know what we're talking about in 2019, J.K. Rowling shared some controversial tweets uh, in support of a researcher. Her name was uh, Maya Forstarter, I believe, and she was fired for making transphobic statements. J.K. Rowling has also like mocked gender-inclusive language. Uh, There was an article that published um, that had said, quote, people, it was, quote, people who menstruate, and J.K. Rowling took issue that it didn't say, quote, women who menstruate, So I think it comes as no surprise that she received, you know, a lot of backlash for this. I think fans in particular felt really betrayed, um, disappointed because Harry Potter is supposed to be about love and acceptance. And this was really far from that. Um, But since then, a lot of actors have come out and in support of the, the trans community. So I think from my perspective is that within all of this, Uh, and reflecting on what happened, you know, words have power. And especially when you're in a role of influence, you have to be mindful of the ramification of things that you say. We've seen this happen uh, a lot with like influencers and celebrities who've said things, inappropriate things in the past, and that's being brought to light now. I think social media in that case is like causing a lot of us to have this these types of conversations um and I think really like the best thing that you can do in those instances is really just listen like come from a place of willingness to understand willingness to accept um you know accept that you are at fault and just show it like a real a willingness to grow I agree and I think that's um, one of the other disappointing things about 
Um, some of the things that she said in the essay that she published on her website is uh, while she says that she has done all this research um, and knows trans people that she's had conversations with, um, she seems so resolute and has her mind made up and there doesn't seem to be much like room for conversation, um, which is, you know, we can't really get anywhere or to any kind of understanding um, when that's the case. So I just, I feel for all the, the people who grew up with this series, whether the books or the movies or both, um, who, you know, for them, it was such a, a big mark in their life and um, so influential on their, on their life. And they must, you know, feel let down or hurt. Not everyone, um, it's not a, a monolith community, but I just feel for the people who, who feel betrayed um, and hurt by this. This obviously brings up a big question you know, can you separate the art from the artist um, when the artist does something like this? Um, I don't think there's a, there's a right answer. I think, like, do you, whatever feels right to you. Um, I think it's totally legitimate to still embrace the work and not the, the creator in this case. Um, so while I understand if, it, if people are so hurt that it, it takes away and taints um, what Harry Potter was for them in their lives, um, I, I, I believe that you can still let it represent whatever you want it to represent because there is a lot of good um, in these stories. Yeah. And I think I come from the same place too. I will say like one thing that is also, I think, important to say is that while I think she should be criticized and I understand the outrage. I don't support the death threats that are like made directly toward her or any malice directed toward her. That's that's never okay. Um, but I understand the outrage. And I think when it comes to books and movies, like especially like the Harry Potter ones, um, I understand people not wanting anything to do with them anymore. And I understand people who still enjoy them. I think especially when you've grown up with Harry Potter being so iconic in our pop culture and our childhood, it's really hard to completely turn away from it. Um, personally, I feel like the books and the movies have gone so beyond JK Rowling that even though she's the author, it's like they belong to all of us. You know, like you said, um, I think we can still love Harry Potter while recognizing it has faults, even like the text itself has faults, the movies have faults. Um, but, you know, acknowledge that the author should be still to still held accountable while liking the books and the movies all the same. Right. Um, there was a quote that Daniel Radcliffe, Radcliffe, who played Harry Potter, gave. Uh, and in my opinion, it was really eloquent how he said it. Uh, it was right after everything happened and uh, he was coming out against what J.K. Rowling was saying. And I'll just read it here. He said to all the people who now feel that their experience of the books has been tarnished or diminished, I am deeply sorry for the pain these comments have caused you. I really hope that you don't entirely lose what was valuable in these stories to you. And in my opinion, nobody can touch that. It means to you what it means to you. And I hope that these comments will not taint that too much. I had the exact same uh, quote written down. Yeah. yeah, I thought that summed it up well. Okay. Well, Moving on, let's let's go uh, to talk a little bit about the cast and crew of Harry Potter. Yeah, um, I think the biggest thing to note here is that 
J.K. Rowling uh, created a very strictly British and Irish cast role for the franchise. Um, so, so much so that apparently they gave the role of Harry Potter to someone else and then they revoked it because he wasn't British. Damn. I know. Although, I mean, good. Right. And I remember like first watching Harry Potter and thinking, oh, they're like all British, um, which shouldn't have been surprising because the books are set in the UK, but I was also 11 and I don't think I'd ever really seen a movie that I can at least remember where everybody was British. So um, definitely like that it was they that they had that representation because it's obviously so in the books. Um, so Chris Columbus uh, is the director who is not British. I looked up so everybody else in the <laughs> cast was fine, but but Chris Columbus also an unfortunate name nowadays. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Poor but, guy. <laughs> yeah. But he directed Mrs. Doubtfire and Home Alone. We also have our very like dynamic trio in Daniel Radcliffe playing Harry Potter, as I said, Rupert Grint, who plays Ron Weasley, and then Emma Watson, who is the iconic and brilliant Hermione Granger. I love her so much. Um, and then you also have Tom Felton, who plays Draco Malfoy. He's like the secondary antagonist. Um, but like the fact that they were able to keep the same child actors throughout the entire franchise is pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't, they didn't think that that was going to be possible and they were able to keep them. Were you going to say something? I just wanted to point out too. I don't know if you're going to, uh, Robbie Coltrane as Hagrid, uh, Maggie Smith as Professor McGonagall, Alan Rickman as Snape, uh, and David Bradley as Mr. Filch. And I point him out because he plays Walter Frey in Game of Thrones, uh, who famously, um conducted the red wedding or oversaw the red wedding um so i i only see walter frey now i see mr Filch. so just like him even even more now same it's hard for me to not see him anymore Uh, apparently david bradley did some method acting for this role according to imdb trivia it said in order to understand what he believed to be caretaker filch's lonely lifestyle david bradley and his cat rented an isolated Irish cottage in which to live for a month before filming began. LOL at a month because we've all been living through a pandemic for two years and have uh, faced much longer periods of isolation. So I feel like we could all play Mr. Filch now. Yeah, David Bradley's got nothing on 2020 or is it the reverse? 2020's got nothing on David Bradley. I'm not quite sure how that phrase works, but one of those. Um, and then speaking to the other actors you mentioned, all three, um, Maggie Smith, Alan Rickman, Robbie Coltrane were handpicked by J.K. Rowling for their roles. She actually had even given uh, Rickman, Alan Rickman, she gave him some of Snape's backstory, which wasn't even revealed till the final book, just book. to kind of help him in his role. I thought that was pretty cool. You also have, there's so many actors in this movie I couldn't put them all down but you've got John Hurt who plays Mr. Ollivander John Cleese plays nearly headless Nick John Cleese I love him so much um and then as a just honorable mention Richard Harris plays Dumbledore and unfortunately Richard Harris passed away after filming the second movie I think he was in his 70s um but he personally was my favorite Dumbledore I thought he was so perfectly cast I don't know how you feel about him yeah mine too yeah I wanted to talk a little bit about that I just thought he was so like 
gentle and warm and wise and like had that like a sweet old grandpa vibe yeah. that, I, that I really liked and then I thought uh, Michael Gambon who went on to take over the role of Dumbledore um, he just had a, a, a darker vibe he also came off kind of pompous and arrogant at times for me um, still he obviously a great Dumbledore um, a great actor but yeah I, I, I prefer the original I think Richard Harris as Dumbledore, especially in these first movies, makes sense because Dumbledore is so quirky and just lovable. Um, and I think as the movie progresses, though, there's a lot more physicality needed from this character. So I don't think he would have maybe been as good of a fit moving forward, but I still love him in these first two movies and he'll always be like Dumbledore to me. There is uh, one last cast member who I think deserves an important call out, and that is the owl who played Hedwig. <laughs> Technically, it was three owls. Their names were Gizmo, Ook, and Sprout, but it was mainly Gizmo, uh, and they were shipped over from Massachusetts, so not technically British, but I think it was all right. What was the second name? Ook, O-O-K. O-O-K, Okay. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just want to say uh, about the cast, uh, we can't ignore the fact all of the um, kind of principal characters and actors that we just listed off are all white. So when we talk about some of the problems, um, other problems with this film, uh, to me, that's one of them that is particularly in the first film. I'd have to go back and look at all the other films to see how much it improves or doesn't improve, but um, it is um, lacking diversity. Um, to a pretty devastating degree. Yeah, and I think that's pretty, I mean, pretty similar with how the books are too. Um, I know like in particular, like there's a lot of criticism. This doesn't really happen until the fourth and fifth books, but there's a character named Cho Chain and she's perceived very negatively in the books. Um, and and it's it's really unfortunate that, this is the case. Representation is really important, especially in film industry, and this lacks it. So I think that's something we can still be critical about. I will say like a lot of these actors, I think also got their big break in this franchise. There's a running joke, which you just mentioned, but a running joke that everyone from Harry Potter is in Game of Thrones. We've already named one actor. Um, so I think several more pop up in Game of Thrones um, throughout. There is one character who is missing noticeably. I don't know if you remember, but there's a character in the book named Peeves, who is a ghost. Uh, he causes a lot. Of, sorry, he causes a lot of trouble. He causes a lot of mischief. Um, they did cast someone to play Peeves. His name is Rick Mayall. He had a script. He filmed his scenes, but unfortunately, they cut him out entirely. I hope he got his uh, also, paycheck. I, he did. Okay. But they did not tell him that he'd been cut according to him. When did he find out? When they were watching it. <laughs> what it's if he had way. like, I don't know how old he was, but if he had children or, or grandchildren who were like, you know, so pumped for, oh man, that sucks. He apparently had kids who were watching it and they mistook him for Hagrid. They were like, your makeup was so great. And they... <laughs> he was like that's not me so unfortunately Peeves never made it which I think Peeves is kind of a side character but he also plays important roles throughout the book so it was kind of uh unfortunate that 
that they had to cut him. Apparently he was really comedic on set too. Like he made the kids laugh constantly. It was really hard to film their scenes because they would be laughing so much. Um, but well, yeah, maybe so. he was pivotal in like keeping morale up and those kids had to carry or as kids, they had to carry a lot. Uh, so maybe he was instrumental in, you know, helping them get through it. That's what yeah. we'll say. <laughs> yeah. That's what we'll say. Hopefully. Um, okay. So I want to do something fun and I don't think we can have a discussion about Harry Potter without discussing our Hogwarts houses. Oh, we're already there. All right. Yeah. I'm like, let's do it. Let's get into it. Okay. Like, I think this is something that even people who haven't seen the movie know about. It's like, what's your Hogwarts house? What, you know, everyone asks. So just for context, four houses are within the Hogwarts, within Hogwarts. Um, there's Gryffindor, Slytherin, Ravenclaw, and Hufflepuff. Uh, I'll go through some of the characteristics first, and then we can talk about, about who we are. But this comes from the official Harry Potter website, Wizarding World. So Griffin, there's Gryffindor, his symbol is a lion. Uh, these are like the most daring uh, people. They like to stand up for the little guy. They like to challenge authority. They have a tendency to ask first, think later. Um, then there's Slytherin, whose symbol is the serpent. They often get a very bad rap, but not everybody in Slytherin is bad. Uh, they're ambitious, shrewd. Um, they're always like one step ahead. They have a dark sense of humor. Then there's Ravenclaw. Their symbol's the eagle. And these people demonst demonstrate excellent wisdom, wit, and skill for learning. They're known for being eccentric. Um, they're the type of person who overanalyzes everything. They're an overachiever. And then they're, they're not afraid to be uh, an individual person. Then there's last but certainly not least is Hufflepuff, whose symbol is the badger. They're the most trustworthy and hardworking. They're humble. They don't feel the need to shout about their achievements. Um, they have a strong moral compass. They always work hard. And I always, I liked this. It said they always have the best snacks. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> so I, I already know what yours is, but what's your Hogwarts <laughs> house, Elizabeth? So I had to take the test again because I forgot but I am, well, let me tell you what I thought I was. Okay. Um, I thought I was kind of like a mix between Ravenclaw and Hufflepuff. Mm -hmm. My results are uh, Hufflepuff, Woo! which I think has, I mean, yeah, there are some things there. I don't know if I always have the best snacks, like I don't carry them around in my purse, but I'm always eating snacks. So that's something. <laughs> um, there's yeah. somewhere to... Um, it's not in that uh, description from Wizarding World, but it said something about fair play, like believes in uh, or values fair play. That's something that really rings true um, for me. Ravenclaw, I don't um, dare to suggest that I am as smart as um, Ravenclaws typically are, but I like to think I have some of those qualities. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. Maybe I'm like a like a Huffleclaw or a Ravenclaw. I like that. Yeah. Raven, Raven Puff. That's yeah. cute. I like it. Can I, can I say what I think you are? Please. Okay. So I also think that you uh, share qualities with Hufflepuff and Ravenclaw. And I was like struggling between the two. Um, but then after hearing about how much you nerded out <laughs> for Harry Potter, <laughs> I'm going to go with Ravenclaw. <laughs> you are correct. Yeah. I am a Ravenclaw. Yeah. Um, which I feel like is pretty accurate. It's interesting because I read a Harry Potter wiki that said 
each house represents an element. So air is Ravenclaw and I'm an Aquarius. So I'm air. And then uh, earth is Hufflepuff and you're a Virgo, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, which, so it matches our Zodiac symbols, which is. Yeah. Yeah. That hadn't even clicked for me. I don't remember if it made you put in your birthday. Maybe that goes into it, but I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, I don't think it did. Pretty like random questions. Yeah. Um, I feel like I might get a different result every time, but um, I also want to say just like some famous uh, Hufflepuffs, uh, Cedric Diggory, Nymphadora, and Newt Scamander. I have wrote down some notable Ravenclaws too. So Luna Lovegood is, I think, the most well-known and she is like my favorite person. I love her so much. Uh, But also Moaning Myrtle was a Ravenclaw. Cho Chang was a Ravenclaw. And then Professors Flitwick, Lockhart, and Quirrell who was in this movie were Ravenclaws. Yeah. Um, So Ravenclaws, as I said, they value intelligence. They're curious. They're creative. And um, some of though their weaknesses that I looked up were uh, they're disconnected from the outside world. It said, quote, because Ravenclaws tend to live inside their own heads, they can come across as vague, disconnected, or uninterested. And I was like, yeah, oh, that that's me. to me a lot. Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> like, yeah, that's, oh my God. That's so, yes. yeah. <laughs> but I'm sometimes so I'm just head. really not interested. <laughs> yeah, that too. Um, you said earlier, you felt like you were both a Ravenclaw and a Hufflepuff. Yeah. So JK Rowling has apparently acknowledged hybrid houses can be a thing. Um, so that definitely is canon. Um, I was thinking about it, how similar this sounds to the Divergent series, Mm. um, and how, you know, a Divergent is someone who fits all of the, um, different categories. So definitely think you shouldn't like feel, you know, stereotyped into one house so to say, um, cause I think there is some stereotyping that can go on within the Hogwarts houses. Like everybody thinks Gryffindors are the best. And then, you know, they say Ravenclaws are stuck up and Hufflepuffs are pushovers and Slytherins are all jerks. Um, so yeah, don't pigeonhole yourself is what I'll say about that. I have a question though. How is Hermione <laughs> Griffin? I mean, she has the qualities of Gryffindor too, but she's like, she's totally Ravenclaw. I think that is a big criticism from the Harry Potter community is that she's so smart. And when I was reading the uh, descriptions on Wizarding World, it was like, well, just because you're smart doesn't mean, you know, you are going to be in Ravenclaw like Hermione was smart. She's in um, Gryffindor. But she's not just smart. Like to me, she embodies everything about Ravenclaw, like the overachiever analyzes everything analyzes yeah and she's a little stuck up yeah it says head stuff full of interesting facts as like a weakness they can come across as arrogant yes um so yeah I think there is a lot of question on why Hermione is in Gryffindor um then that will probably never be answered but something to ponder Hmm. Hmm. so I want to start talking about just the whole like world building that goes on within Harry Potter because we've we've started a little bit with talking about our Hogwarts houses but the Wizarding War world is so extraordinary especially like when you compare it to the Muggle world um Chris Columbus 
purposely said he wanted the muggle scenes to be bleak and dreary uh you know they even like made the dursley's house even more unpleasant by seeking out like the ugliest furniture possible um, and i think there's a lot of symbolism there between the norm which is what the dursleys value they almost like drive themselves mad trying to fit the mold whereas in the wizarding wizarding world it's so like diff- being different is celebrated and there's a lot of color other than actually like privet drive like maybe because as an american to me it's like romantic <laughs> because it looks so damn british right uh, and dreary but like in a romantic <laughs> london way i think of it more as the homes you see where every house is the same it's very like stepfordy yes um everything is designed the same everything fits the same there's nothing different about it um whereas when you go into Diagon Alley for the first time as an example like I think that's when you see it really brought to life there's all the magic shops there's Ollivanders there's Gringotts it's a lot to absorb um but I feel like the movie did a really good job adapting these scenes from the books because that's this is like how I envisioned it when I was reading it um are you going to talk about Stuart Craig no, who's he? Okay, he's the production designer, and he was the production okay. designer on all of the films um, and Fantastic Beasts, um, oh, which wow. I think is really cool because the, the consistency that you can get, and obviously it speaks to just how trusted he was and how good he was at um, building this world. I think that the detail in the movie, um, in terms of the the sets and the the costumes and all of that, um, is what more than anything makes this movie so captivating and makes it work so well because it is it's essentially I mean it's a two and a, isn't it like two and a half hours it's like a two and a half hour yeah exposition <laughs> but because it is a magical world and we're seeing it through the eyes of Harry who this is all new to him and because of all the detail um and the way they they built this for the screen it's it it works yeah I mean the attention to detail in this movie in particular is amazing and it's also the first time we as the audience are getting introduced to Harry Potter and the wizarding world. And so we're experiencing it the same as Harry is. And I think in later movies, you almost start just like get used to it. Mm -hmm. Um, But the grandeur of getting that like first shot, going through the wall to, to Diagon Alley, getting to go to Hogwarts. I mean, there's so many like magical things that happen within Hogwarts like people are moving in pictures there's ghosts there's a moving staircase you have owls delivering your mail I mean it just makes you feel such awe and wonder like the food magically appears which Mm -hmm. I was like I love that part like I love when the food just appears because it's just uh, even though like later you find out who is making the food um there's a little bit of mystery that is taken away I think from that but it's just like this magic, like everybody wants to go to Hogwarts, but like to film the Hogwarts scenes, they had to, they, I think they used a Gloucester cathedral. They actually wanted to use um, Canterbury cathedral, but the Dean there said it was unfitting for a Christian church to be used. I know uh, to promote pagan imagery, which I guess is like another controversy. There's like the original controversy about Harry Potter. I actually watched, it was like a 1998 or nine interview on um, Donnie and Marie Osmond's show. Like this is old. Um, <laughs> and this is before the, the movies. 
And uh, yeah, that was like the big controversy at the time. It came up in another old interview I watched too. And I was like, seriously? Yeah, I, there was one summer I went to a church camp. Um, I, I'm not religious. I just, I went with a friend to a church camp and within like the, I guess, instructions for going, it was like, you couldn't bring any books that were hedonistic or, you know, promoted pagan ism and so like I was like I guess this doesn't count or I guess this uh would include Harry Potter so I kind of almost wanted to bring my Harry Potter book just to be a rebel but <laughs> I didn't the the one thing too about the world building that that I think didn't necessarily age well are the visual effects I don't know if you caught on and felt yeah. the same um I, I think a lot of them hold up the the troll did not really hold up well <laughs> for me that's the one that really stands out but even the Quidditch, I thought, still works. Um, so yeah, a little split on that. I felt like split too. I think, I thought they did a good job with Fluffy. I thought they made mm-hmm. the three-headed dog look really good. Uh, some things that I thought looked bad were like when Neville is flying around on the broomstick and he ends up falling. Like you can tell like that's computer generated. Uh, yeah. It doesn't look real to me. The director had said he was even disappointed with the visual effects of the movie, that he, they were never up to anyone's standards, is what he said. But, you know, it's also 2001. And I think the early 2000s are known for being a trial and error period <laughs> of like transitioning, even though like Jurassic Park was in the 90s and did excellent computer generated mm. graphics. I know. Um, early 2000s I think was definitely a time of experimentation I will say though I was shocked to read that on according to IMDb trivia this movie cost more to make than Lord of the Rings the Fellowship of the Ring oh then I googled it to fact check this and it said Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone cost 125 million and Lord of the Rings the Fellowship was 93 million and what year was that? Was Fellowship? 2001. Same year. So that is interesting. Mm-hmm. But yeah, when I, when I see Lord of the Rings, I, and I mean, I haven't seen the first one in a while, but it's interesting to see them both made in the same year using the same, presumably like same yeah. software, like same, they had the same access to the same stuff, you know, at least it was there. It's interesting to, to see Yeah, that. I'd have to, I'd have to rewatch, uh, Lord of the Rings to do a fair comparison, but just from my memory, which we've established is not very good. Um, <laughs> um, it, they do seem more, much more sophisticated really yeah. in Lord of the Rings, but, but it, I will say it's kind of nice to hear them, uh, the, the creators of, of Harry Potter, the filmmakers, um, to hear them reflect and talk about all the things that they see wrong with it. Because anyone yeah. who's ever done uh anything creative you see all the errors and you think it's awful um but chances are other people aren't seeing them we're seeing them now uh, because we're, we're looking back 20 years later um right but there's a there's a nice like 10 minute featurette on hbo max um about building the world of harry potter and like they talk about building hogwarts and how challenging that was and how they were really unhappy with it especially in the first one and so throughout the rest of the films they kind of like tweet things here and there uh to, to improve upon it and i just it's just comforting <laughs> yeah i think the fact that 
it's the first time we're seeing this and the, the like the first time it's brought to life is still like makes it great um you know getting to see like everything get brought to life I think that nostalgic side of it is always going to make people like it a little bit like it maybe like a little bit more than in than in later movies but I definitely think like they got better at the CGI and um the set design and all of that moving forward too I want to move on to talk a little bit about the central theme of what Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone is. Um, I really only have one big overarching theme, and I think that's the theme that carries out throughout the entire movies as well, but it's this idea of good versus evil, you know, like that old thing. Um, (laughs) I think it's definitely one of the central themes of Harry Potter and especially in Sorcerer's Stone in the early movies in general, I think it's really very black and white um, of like who is good and who is bad, which I feel like is a kind of representative, representative, no, saying that word. Representation? <laughs> Maybe. Um, representative of like how you view, you view it as a kid. Like, I feel like it's maybe as you're younger, it's very black and white you know, Voldemort's bad, Harry is good, but as the movies continue and they get older, that line gets a little bit more gray. So it's not as black and white. Um, but yeah, I think like when it's introduced to us in this first movie, I want to talk specifically with like the characters of Harry, Voldemort, and Snape and those three in this whole central theme. So starting with Harry and his treatment of the Dursleys, his aunt and uncle and cousin suck. Um, they make Harry live in a cupboard under the stairs. He's apparently never gotten Christmas presents. Uh, they lied to him about his past. They're just all around generally terrible people. Uh, but in some ways, it was maybe like a good thing that Harry grew up this way because he could be humble. You know, he's, and let me finish. Okay, wait, wait, wait. He's because he's famous in the wizarding world. He's rich. And I think if he grew up with that, it might have influenced him negatively. Yes. I'm just thinking that realistically, <laughs> a kid growing up like that, that that is straight up childhood abuse and trauma. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I've kind of in watching it this time around. I was like, why is why is Harry just so good? Like he has been through some shit, right? He lost his parents, uh, ends up with the Dursleys. I can never say that right the first time. Yeah. (laughs) Who, I mean, not only, I mean, do they, well, first of all, I want to say I would have killed for a cupboard under the stairs. (laughs) (laughs) I would have, I still would. Like that's a wonderful reading nook. Like (laughs) I'll take that. Um, I mean, but they, they, they made him feel or tried to make him feel like, like nothing. Mm-hmm. um that kid's gonna have some issues in real life <laughs> that kid's not yeah. just gonna be like honorable and good and mature and all of those things and I, I'm not saying this is a criticism but it, they're just Harry starts good and he's pretty much good throughout there's not necessarily a ton of arc 
I'm sure plenty of people would get into the details of each of the films and how the story progresses. You can you can argue against that. But like when you say that the the lines kind of blur, I don't know that 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 they ever really blurred for me. I always felt it was like pretty straightforward who was good, who was evil. I think they don't blur with Harry and Voldemort. I think they blur with Snape. Yes, most of all, um, yes. as you learn more about his character. And there are things that I think Harry does, maybe not does, but feels too, where he's sometimes pulled into good versus evil um, within him. And that's, I mean, a big piece of that is because when um, Voldemort tried to kill Harry, a piece of Voldemort's soul got stuck into Harry. So I think that's revealed later on. But I, I mean, definitely like talking about the Dursleys. I it's I mean nowadays I feel like this would be like a story of how a serial killer got created yes you know for sure <laughs> yes exactly and so it's very like extraordinary that Harry still was good and so again I think it also goes into like nature versus nurture where what are you at your core? Like, are you just born good and you are good? Or are you born with a blank slate and the world, depending on where you are and how you're treated, that is what builds you or pulls you one way or the not, one way or another. Um, so an interesting thing to think about, but I also want to not dwell on it too long and go into talk about these uh, two like very juxtaposing scenes that we have in the movie one of them is when Harry gets his wand for the first time and one of them is the sorting hat and I feel both of these kind of go hand in hand where we see the line between good and bad and the line the line can be thin you know whether you cross over to good or bad so during the scene at Ollivander's Harry ends up with a wand and it's the same uh, phoenix feather as the one from Voldemort's wand. And so Ollivander, I'll just read this quote. He says, the wand chooses the wizard, Mr. Potter. It's not always clear why, but I think it is clear that we can expect great things from you. After all, he who must not be named did great things. Terrible, yes, but great. And then, so remembering that when you go and see the scene with the sorting hat, and the sorting hat's trying to decide where to put Harry. The sorting hat also says something very similar. He says, difficult, very difficult, plenty of courage, I see, not a bad mind either. There's talent and a thirst to prove yourself, but where to put you? Not Slytherin, A. Are you sure? You could be great, you know. It's all here in your head. No, or I'm um, sorry, and Slytherin would help you on the way to greatness. There's no doubt about that. No, well, if you're sure, better be Gryffindor. So, Ollivander sees it the sorting hat sees it but you know Harry ultimately it comes down to a choice and what Harry chooses to be is good uh, I think it also comes into play with the mirror of Ezrin Erised I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it's, that yeah Erised I think Erised which shows you your deepest and most desperate desires Erised is desire backwards I don't ah, know if you knew that no yeah. I didn't catch that nice Apparently the whole inscription is just backwards. So if you read it backwards, it says, I show not your face, but your heart's desire. And so I think this speaks to the dangerous side of intense desires and how it can drive a person mad. You know, Harry was very obsessed 
he I think even more so in the books he was really obsessed with just sitting in front of the mirror and watching his family um so yeah yeah so that's actually if I have least favorite part the mirror is kind of my least favorite part and when you say that he was much more obsessed in the books that makes me realize one of the reasons it doesn't work for me is because I never believed that Harry was obsessed. I never believed that he was at risk of falling for um, these, you know, faux scenarios and um, falling into that trap. Um, so then for me, it just came off as a little bit of a stretch, came off a little cheesy. And then the fact that it comes up again and is pretty pivotal in mm -hmm. the end when I think it's already kind of a weak element didn't didn't love it but I also like I my favorite one of my favorite quotes from this movie relates to the mirror which I'll go ahead and just tell you um and that's when Dumbledore tells Harry at the end it does not do to dwell or maybe it's when he's at the mirror I'm sorry I can't remember mm -hmm. he says it does not do to dwell on dreams Harry and forget to live yeah love that quote uh reminds me a lot of soul and the things that we talked about with that movie um but overall, it, the mirror's role in the movie, it's not my favorite. Yeah, I think, like I said, it's made a lot more apparent in the book. I think Harry slips away multiple times to just sit in front of the mirror. And all he does is sit constantly and stare at that mirror. He ends up seeing not just his parents, he sees his whole family from the past. And so that's why he just, you know, he never had that feeling as a kid I think once he gets to Hogwarts he has a more of a feeling of family especially with the friends that he's making but this is the first time he's really getting to like absorb his mom and dad and see them so I don't think that was necessarily captivated as well in the book like you said uh, I want to also I think this is a good segue into talking about Voldemort and you know Voldemort he's this embodiment of evil you, you don't see what happened in the dark days when Harry was born, but you understand the effect that it had. People wouldn't even speak his name. They say, you know who. Um, and so when we talk about desires, Voldemort's obsessed desire is his will to live. Um, you know, he even comes back. And when he comes back, he has to live off Professor Quirrell. He's very parasitic in a way. He's doing anything he can to survive. He's drinking the blood of unicorns, which are so pure. Only someone with pure evil would do that. Um, but he's so bad that he's willing to do anything to stay alive. And, you know, even at the end, he tries to tempt Harry by saying, I'll let you see your parents again if you just give me the stone because he wants to live so much and spread his evil ways, I guess I'll say. Yeah. And I think it's not just that he wants to live or survive. It's that he he wants immortality. Yeah. Um, immortality and, and power, I would say. I think one thing that's interesting that I um, was reading about is some of the inspiration for Voldemort and the he who must not be named and not naming him and having people be afraid of even just saying his name. This is from the Leaky Cauldron in MuggleNet. They did an interview with J.K. Rowling. Um, this is just part of the quote. Uh, she says, in, in the 1950s in London, there were a pair of gangsters called the Cray Twins. The story goes that people didn't speak the name Cray. You just, just didn't mention it. You didn't talk about them because retribution was so brutal and bloody. I think this is an impressive demonstration of strength that you can convince someone not to use your name. 
impressive in a sense that demonstrates how deep the level of fear is that you can inspire. It's not something to be admired. So I just thought that was really interesting um, that that was such like an important piece of this for her. Yeah. Um, also when I mentioned that the Cray twins, um, there's a movie called Legend and Tom Hardy plays both the Cray twins. It's really good, highly recommend. Yeah, I think I've seen references to Voldemort also being like a Hitler or someone within that high level of power who is trying to essentially commit genocide across his world, Voldemort's world, where, you know, he later on, when you find out more about him, he hates muggles. He, you know, wants to rule over all of the wizards and, you know, only those who are loyal to him, he will take under his wing and everyone else he'll just kill. Um, and so back, go, going back to talk about Sorcerer's Stone, like the reason this book is called Sorcerer's Stone um, is because Voldemort wants the elixir of life. That's what the Sorcerer's Stone gives. Um, there's just as a side note, because I kept writing philosopher's stone in my notes and I was like why am I writing philosopher's stone like this is sorcerer's stone and apparently it is called philosopher's stone uh everywhere else but America so I guess they thought that Americans wouldn't be familiar with the philosopher's stone so they changed it to sorcerer's stone only in America I mean I don't know what sorcerer's stone is I mean like (laughs) right it's not it's not a real thing uh, yeah, I, I'm not quite sure why they did that, but Nicholas Fumel, who is the creator of the Philosopher's Stone, was a real al- alchemist in the 1300s, and some believe he created the Philosopher's Stone um, that he lived for hundreds of years. But when we talk about, when we talked about the mirror, that becomes the key into getting the stone at the end. And so the way that Dumbledore set it up was that Voldemort was never going to be able to get the stone. Um, He says only a person who wanted to find the stone, find it, but not use it, would be able to get it. And I kind of get, I got the sense more, probably the most rewatching this movie this time around, that Dumbledore set this all up from the beginning, that I feel like he knew something like this was going to happen. And here's why. So he had Harry see Hagrid take something out of the Gringotts vault when Hagrid could have gotten that at any point in time. Harry saw Fluffy. Um, Dumbledore gave Harry the invisibility cloak that gets revealed later. Dumbledore tells Harry about the, well, Harry stumbles upon it, but Dumbledore tells Harry the true meaning behind the mirror. And I think it's also heavily implied that Dumbledore constructed the trials for Harry, Ron, and Hermione at the end, even though it was each like professor's kind of take on a trial. There's one with broomsticks. Harry likes to fly. Um, The chess match is definitely fitting for Ron. So I think there is some speculation that Dumbledore... Dumbledore always has more going on behind him than you realize, and I feel like this might be one of those instances yeah it makes sense um because it's you know kind of it's convenient um so it's either because Dumbledore set it up that way or it's just convenient (laughs) for the writer writer. Um, there are no coincidences anyway so going back to to Voldemort you know he's so obsessed with power he says there is no good or, or 
or evil. There is only power. And so, you know, he's was so powerful and I think it makes it all the more powerful that a baby and really a mother's love is what defeated him in the end, which is why Harry is so famous. It's also why Quirrell turned to ash at the end when he tried to touch him because Quirrell was so full of hatred from absorbing Voldemort into himself um, that he couldn't stand to hold him. Yeah, that was another one that um, was just too convenient. I, I yeah. love to me the the theme isn't just good versus evil. It's it's that love prevails over hate, um, mm-hmm. and 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 so I love that part of it. But that was just a little that was a little too easy, uh, yeah. for Harry to prevail in that situation. And I like the fact that the reason why he survived Voldemort the first time is because of his mother's love. Mm-hmm. That that's strong enough to to pull me in and to convey that idea by throwing it in there again at the end and so conveniently it almost kind of like risks taking away from that yeah I see what you're saying and I don't know like how else they could have wrapped that up because at I mean at some point we knew Coral was going to have to die uh and and so to connect it back to Harry's mom and the love that his mom had for him is what essentially saved him I don't know exactly what other way they could have done it but I see your point where it was a little too on the nose yeah it just happens so quickly he puts his hand on him and then he like disintegrates like even just like finding a way to kind of stretch it out a little bit to where um professor quirrell is like what the hell is happening um but still tries to go after him again like just like at least savor it for a minute it was just so quick and easy that's one critique I think have of this whole movie is that everything is so fast-paced it like everything I feel like happens quickly and it's also all take trying to take place within one year of even longer a period like first starting at Dursley's and then going through a year at Hogwarts so I think I think in that instance everything's gonna feel rushed especially like these but I but especially these scenes need to be probably focused on a little bit more yeah I agree I want to move on to Snape because he's not in well, he's in this movie a lot, but he gets his character gets explored more, I'll say, in other movies. But you have Snape in this movie, who is essentially the red herring. He's the one the characters like think is the bad guy, but in reality, he's really neither always good and neither always evil. He's what I see as like the gray side of dabbling into both. And really, I think his good side comes from the fact that, which you don't find out until the last book, but it's because he loved Harry's mom, Lily. And you notice when Snape sees Harry for the first time, he's kind of taken aback. And I think it's because he sees Lily in him. And so it's the first time he's had that reference since she died. Um, There's this like really well-known Easter egg in the first movie and it's when they're having the first potions class and Snape asks what would I get if I added powdered root of asphodel asphodel to an infusion of wormwood and all of the people ended up looking into symbolism of all these words and they deduce that they think he's saying I bitterly regret Lily's death so according 
to Victorian flower language, asphodel is a type of lily, uh, which means my regrets follow you to the grave. And wormwood means absence and also typically symbolizes bitter sorrow. So if you combine those all together, I bitterly regret Lily's death. <laughs> My question is, what do you get when you combine those things? I bitterly regret Lily's death. No, no, no. no. When you actually combine those things. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, I thought he, I think he answered that. No, no, wait, maybe he didn't. Oh, I don't think he does because I, I noticed that more this time watching and it was like, man, I wonder what that, I bet that has significance, whatever that makes. Um, hold on. Now that you've put me down a wormhole. Oh yeah. He does answer it. Asphodel and wormwood make a sleeping potion. So powerful is known as the drought of living death. This might have been in the book. Maybe. Yeah. I don't think that's in the, in yeah. the movie. Yeah. Can I share a fun fact about, um, Snape? Yes, Severus please. Snape. So there's so much uh, guesswork at like, what inspired this? What inspired this? And people have all these theories of like, there's a location that people are convinced inspired Diagon Alley. Um, but JK Rowling has debunked like most of these theories and said like, I never even went to that place or didn't go until like, you know, after I wrote this, but there's, there's one, <laughs> this one um, that she has confirmed. She tweeted this, I think it was in 2018, um, a sign that says uh, Severus Road. It says uh, Borough of Batterson, uh, Severus Road. And she would walk past it um, often. Um, and she later put two and two together. She didn't know why the name Severus kept popping up in her head. And then she remembered the sign and realized that that's where she had gotten it from. Oh, yeah. I like that. I like when you get to like figure out a little bit more about the why of why things happen like why so and so because Severus I've never heard of name quite like that before yeah and it's just because it's it's hard to imagine someone's JK Rowling's imagination like the level of detail um and all the the new things in this world um, I think it's natural for, natural for us to want to know, like, where did she get that idea? Like, what real life yeah. thing inspired that? And there's just not always an answer. Sometimes it just comes to you. You never know. Sometimes it's taken from real life and real experiences. Um, the last thing I want to say about Snape is that even though he is very stoic and stern, in the end, you realize he's trying to protect Harry all along, which when I read it in the book, I feel like was such a twist that I was not expecting in the book I think the whole time and it's probably because I was young when I read it so I'm led to believe this that Snape is bad and you're gonna get to the end it's gonna be Snape and then you see it's Quirrell and you're like what and then you know you gotta quickly read to find out what else is happening well yeah I think yeah well yeah and in the movies like uh Snape like he's just super creepy and just always like like uh What's the word I'm looking for? Lingering. <laughs> yeah. Snape doesn't help his argument no. at all, ever. No. Um, he's just that way. But I think it's interesting once you realize who the villain is and then you watch the Quidditch scene in particular and you see that it's Snape isn't the one jinxing Harry. He's actually trying to save Harry. But you can see in the background that Quirrell's there and... 
Quirrell's also looking up very intently. He's not like whispering as audible, like visually, I guess, as Snape is. And then when Harry ends up being okay, it's not really a look of disappointment from Snape at the end. It's a look of relief and confusion too. So I'm sure he's trying to figure out who is doing this. Um, okay. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we go into some specific scenes? And I really only want to talk about the ending. Um, oh, okay. Personally, which, so if there's another scene you want to start us off with, we can do that. Yeah, I can go through um, some of my favorite scenes. Um, I don't have to spend too much time on them. So the Hogwarts letter sequence, um, mm-hmm. I think that's brilliant because of how it builds. So uh, Harry gets his first letter from Hogwarts. Dudley steals it from Harry, rats him out like a little shit that he is. Um, Mr. Dursley uh, rips up the next sequence of letters that come. Uh, he nails the letter box shut. The owls flock to the yard. He burns the letters. And just when you think there's kind of nowhere else to go, it's Sunday and there's no post on Sundays and everyone's relieved, everyone but Harry. Um, and then of course, we know what happens. Uh, letters flood the house. And then it, it continues from there. They try to escape and go to this um, dark rock in the middle of, of the sea. And um, I just, uh-huh. I, just uh, I, I love how that scene um, or sequence builds. Um, I think it conveys Dursley's desperation to keep you know, Harry's truth secret from him, which I also kind of question why, uh, why Dursley cares that much and why they would want to get rid of him at the first yeah. chance um, that, that they got. But I love that scene. I think it's a, a Harry Potter classic. Um, we kind of, you mentioned uh, Diagon Alley and just how much, you know, how, how beautiful of an introduction that is to this uh, new wizarding world. Um, the whole kind of like, prep sequence with Hagrid's the Leaky Cauldron, Diagon Alley, Ollivander's uh, wand shop, um, the the bank, Gringotts. Gringotts. Yeah, all of that. It's just a really good um, introduction. I was going to add really quick about the Dursley stuff before I forget, because first of all, the idea that there is no post on Sunday was clearly before Amazon Prime was a thing, um, which I know isn't technically post office, but still just wanted to throw that in there too like that scene in particular when you just like the letters are flooding onto them and I just wish like I could have been there that day they filmed it because Mm -hmm. I have to imagine it was so comical getting all of these letters just like Mr. Dursley's just like ends up falling backward and like they're hitting him in the neck um at that point I thought that was so brilliant brilliantly done and two when the reason I think that the Dursley's don't like Harry and don't like the wizarding world so much really is more so on Mrs. Dursley um, because Lily is her sister. And so Lily was accepted into Hogwarts school of witchcraft and wizardry wizardry. And she says it a little bit in the movie. I think it becomes more clear later in the books that, you know, she was jealous, I think of Lily getting to go to have this experience and she didn't. And her parents were like, we have a witch in the family and they were so proud of her. And so I think her name is Pertunia took that and kind of carried it with her. And she found Mr. Dursley, who is such a staunch, like everything must be normal. And so she kind of ingratiated herself with him and found someone who could kind of support 
that side of like her disappointment, I think. Yeah, I still, I still think um, if I were them, God forbid, that uh, I would just want to get rid of him. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I guess maybe there was a, I don't know if there was a sense of somewhere buried deep down inside her that she felt that she owed it to Lily to keep him. But yeah, I'm not sure. Um, I also uh, want to talk about the dark forest. I don't know how much you were going to mm-hmm. get to that, but um, the reason why I love um, that scene is because it's like the darkest, I think the darkest part of the movie. Um, and that really stuck out to me more than ever watching it again. I mean, you have like what looks like the Grim Reaper sucking blood from uh, a unicorn yeah. and then floating at Harry. <laughs> it is fucking terrifying. Um, yeah. it's, it's scary even uh, for me, a 35 year old woman watching it again. Um, right. And it's just a great like dark forest is a, just like a great rich environment. And I have some like why the flick moments about that, but um, yeah. Yeah, that was, I mean, there are so many good scenes that we could keep going. Why are you going to build Hogwarts next to a dark forest? That I have, that's not like a why the flick thing, but there's a lot of dangerous shit that happens in Hogwarts full of kids that maybe shouldn't be going on and get it. Like that's the setting for everything that happens in the movies and the books, but literally there's always something dangerous happening in Hogwarts and parents are sending their kids here. And I love how uh, when everyone arrives on the first day at Hogwarts, Dumbledore just immediately says, don't go, it's, it's super specific, don't go to the third floor on the right hand side or whatever, and don't go to the dark forest. Well, now we're definitely going, like, we definitely right. want to go now. Yeah, I think it may be in the book, like the Weasley twins may have tried to even go at some point I'm not sure if that's 100% the case but yeah you're just inviting kids to want to explore I mean maybe not the dark forest because there's really scary shit in there but um definitely like within the walls and it wasn't even Harry Hermione and Ron's fault that they got there the first time the staircase led them there um which again was that double door or yeah yeah I was gonna say I mean it that could add to the argument that Dumbledore orchestrated all this because he was saying mm-hmm. like don't go to the third floor Harry <laughs> wink 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 um yeah I try to find um I didn't try too hard honestly but to find a little more on the moving staircases and why they move and who that serves and who who moves them yeah or like what good. like informs them and maybe it's Dumbledore possibly yeah I could see it mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think that brings us to the end. Um, if you want to wrap it up. So like, and I mean the ending of the, of the movie. So after, you know, Harry, Ron and Hermione go through the tests, you know, after Harry confronts Voldemort, after he recovers in the hospital, they end the school year by seeing who wins the house cup. And you think it's going to be Slytherin, but no, 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 no. Dumbledore pulls a whole switcheroo on them at the last minute and he says recent events must be taken into account and so between ron hermione harry and neville gryffindor earns 170 points to beat slytherin uh firstly tie at 160 just to keep 
things interesting and then Neville gets the extra 10 points. So I want to ask you, is this fair? Well, I mean, at the very least, Dumbledore, my dude, you could have done this math before announcing <laughs> that Slytherin was the winner and then taking, taking it, it back. Yeah. Yeah. But that's just unnecessary. Look, we know that Draco Malfoy is a little shit. Right. But he, ha- he didn't do, he hasn't done anything unforgivable yet to where he deserves and, and his house deserves to be embarrassed like that. Um, so yeah, at the very least, you could have done this beforehand. But I do think it's, um, it's, it's like, it's fair though. I mean, to, for them to get those points. Yeah. I think it was fair. I think it's a kind of dick move to wait till the feast when Slytherins thought that they had it. And, you know, you think there would be maybe a cutoff of like, well, the, you know, finals have happened. No more points can be earned. Um, I think it shows a little bit of favoritism, aren't they? Just a little bit. <laughs> Just a little bit. I also wonder how many Death Eaters did Dumbledore create that day uh, from the Slytherins? <laughs> no, they were so pissed off. But yeah. I had to be pissed. Like, and I, like, I know Malfoy isn't the greatest. He sucks. But I don't think he speaks for the entire Slytherin like right. student group either. There's only a few Slytherins that we really focus on, and as we know. The stereotypes, not all Slytherins are bad, and I'm sure those Slytherin students earned those points doing things that, and also you have to think too, Harry, Ron, and Hermione earned those points. There was no way any other students could earn those points. Like, like it was not of equal comparison to like, they can do it too, and they can, you know? So I don't know. It's, I look back on it now. When I first read it, I was like, oh, this is awesome. And now I look at it and I'm like, mm, favoritism. Just picturing like a young Claire, like, fuck yeah. <laughs> I was so excited. And then, then I was like, oh, now I'm like, mm, maybe not so much, but whatever. Well, I think that brings us to our final segments. Are, we're going to start with the, our why the flick moments. So I'll, we'll go back and forth, but I'll start Um and this is also one that we've kind of already discussed, but why the flick did Dumbledore allow Harry to stay at the Dursleys knowing he was being treated like shit? Yes, that is a very good question. I mean, he says in the, in the film, I'm assuming in the book, um, that he has no other family because McGonagall yeah. like basically asked that question, like these are the worst kind of muggles. So I guess what are your other options? You put him in the foster care system, Maybe that would have been better. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, it's just, I'm just like, I don't know what would have been better. I said earlier, I feel like it's probably best that he grew away, grew up away from the wizarding world so that he wasn't just like, didn't have the spotlight on him all the time um, and didn't grow up with like a jaded perspective. But I still think, as we've said, Harry grew up really, he turned out really good for how he was treated by the Dursleys. Suspiciously good. Yeah. Okay. I have a lot of why the flicks, but um, <laughs> why the flick isn't it platform nine and a half? Why is it platform nine and three quarters? You bored nine and three quarters by running in between nine and 10, which would kind of make that like halfway so why isn't it nine and a half I feel like nine and a half 
nine platform nine and a half maybe doesn't roll off the tongue as well as nine and three quarters because all you know is nine and three quarters so nine and a half sounds weird did they go directly in the middle or were they you know a little like three-fourths of the way over in the column they were in the middle um I did (laughs) in the there's a uh CBS News um interview with JK Rowling from 1999 and she somewhat addresses this um that you know obviously it can't just be like you know on a muggle platform uh so you know you put it in between nine and ten and in kind of a hidden place so it's got to be a fraction and she just liked the sound of nine and three quarters there you go yeah but I think good point I also have a question about the platform why the flick did Hagrid not tell Harry how to get to platform nine and three quarters because they're at the train station though when Hagrid leaves him yeah, that's also I, um, one of my so we didn't really talk about performances um, it's not the best acting in my opinion <laughs> there's definitely some like stiff that's performance and, and line delivery and that is one of them and it always bothered <laughs> me where Hagrid like gives him his ticket uh, to nine and three quarters and Harry's like a close-up of Harry and he's just down reading the ticket and he's like you know platform nine and three three quarters there's no such thing as platform nine and three quarters. Is there? (laughs) You just, you really have to see like my reenactment, Um, but like the way that he just like conveniently looks up at that line and Hagrid disappeared. It's just. Right. It's so obvious that it's just like an obvious thing that they use in film. Um, Hagrid, I think also before then was like, oh, look at the time. Like, and it's, yeah, it's definitely, it was, it was definitely awkward I'd say mm-hmm. I would agree with you there is it my turn yeah why the flick did they let Harry and Malfoy wander off on their own in the dark forest uh, that's, when, I have the exact same one yeah when we've been told how dangerous it is we end up seeing how dangerous it is and they just send two 11 year olds and they're like we have a we have a great idea let's split up well yeah. we can cover more ground that way trying to find something that's been killing unicorns across the dark forest right and i can i can see hagrid doing that it's hagrid mm, yeah. um mr filch though right he's there as well <laughs> and yeah. he signs off on this um so there's that and then uh why the flick didn't harry run at the sight of a grim reaper draining a unicorn malfoy had the right idea yeah why harry's just standing there <laughs> even fang fang was like well, i'm out yeah Bye. like when the dog especially the like 150 pound dog is running Big ass dog that's yeah. that's your cue to get the fuck out of there right and he's just paralyzed with fear well he's gonna need to shape up or <laughs> he's got a long road ahead <laughs> or maybe he felt drawn to it in a way because of her- of Voldemort's soul being inside him but that seems like a stretch yeah um okay so I want to know why the flick are they keeping the sorcerer's stone in Hogwarts I mean, yeah, exactly. Because there they, wouldn't be a story without it. That's why. Because there wouldn't be a book. It, yeah. like they say, Hogwarts is the safest place, mm-hmm. and I. So I get that part of it, but then you're telling me, but then you're telling me that you're going to keep something so valuable and dangerous there with children around everywhere. Um, clearly, it was like Gringotts is the next safest place other than Hogwarts, and clearly 
clearly it was not safe enough to stay in Gringotts. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I will say, and I di- it didn't really click for me until you said it earlier, Dumbledore knew Voldemort could never get the, um, the stone because um, only somebody um, yeah. who wanted it who, but didn't, wouldn't use yeah. it um, could get it. Mm-hmm. Um, that is actually kind of brilliant. And so maybe that would be like the safest, like surefire way. True. Um, but then again, then again, Claire, why do you need everything else? Why do you need the wizard's chest? Why do you need the three-headed dog? Right. I think when, because I thought about this too, how really Harry, Hermione, and Ron didn't even have to do all that because in the end, it would have been Quirrell just standing there trying to figure out how to get it. And by then, the other professors in Dumbledore would have swooped in. So I don't know the question. Um, okay, my last why the flick moment is why the flick is, and during the Quidditch scene, why the flick is hitting a bludgeon at the keeper, not a foul. Thank you. That's one of mine. Why <laughs> the flick aren't there apparently penalties in right. Quidditch? <laughs> my this God. Clearly like unsportsmanlike conduct. Yeah, you have Oliver Wood laying on the ground, unconscious, not moving. I mean, he's basically dead just kidding but still like and then nobody's to guard the goalpost so Slytherin keeps scoring just seems not right I agree but since we're talking about Quidditch I do want to read this one thing about Quidditch Um, okay this was uh, I think in the same uh Twitter thread that I referenced from JK Rowling um because there's been a lot of people like who say that Quidditch makes like absolutely no sense um (laughs) uh, she says it makes perfect sense she said there's glamour and chasing an elusive lucky break but teamwork and persistence can still win the day everyone's vulnerable to blows of fate and obstructive people and success means rising above them quidditch is the human condition wow pretty deep i've never once had that inkling so Mm -hmm. i don't know if i'll look at quidditch the same way again i do know like there are rare instances where even if the seeker gets the snitch, the other team can still win because they've scored more points. So I feel like that kind of goes into it. But yeah, interesting human condition and Quidditch. I'll have to I'll have to go back and reevaluate. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's move on to how many flicks do we give? Uh, For a little bit of background on how critics have rated this movie, on IMDb, it is a 7.6 out of 10. And then on Rotten Tomatoes, critics and audiences are pretty much the same. 81% from critics, 82% from audiences. So it is fresh. Um, For me, I said earlier that I think this is one of the best book adaptations So that alone gets it a really high score compared to some of the other Harry Potter movies for me. Uh, There's a level of nostalgia there too with it being the first one. Uh, I do think over the years, the story gets better, but I think this was a good jumping off point to introduce us to the world for the first time. Again, like you said, there's a lot of exposition, but I'm like so enthralled in the world that I'm willing to follow along with it. I love the cast. I think everyone was really perfectly chosen for their roles. Uh, the Again, the amount of world building 
that they did was extraordinary. I think it really set the standard for movies going forward too. like Diagon Alley, as we said, like that was a whole ass set that they built. Um, I think everything, but like inside Gringotts, they built the built Diagon Alley from scratch. So that's amazing. Um, pacing wise with the movie, I said, I felt like it was a little too fast paced at times. Things felt rushed, especially like in the beginning and the mirror scene and the end. Um, so, and then again, some things didn't age as well, like the CGI, honestly, I can, I can forgive that because it's the early 2000s and things weren't great back then. So all in all, I'm going to give this one a 4.2 out of five. Nice. I give this 3.9 flicks out of five. I think whatever we can say like critically about the film, it, it, it can't trump the fact that you mentioned the n- nostalgia, the wonder, uh, the escape that it is. Um, again, I think so much of the credit goes to just the, the production design and the set design um, and the level of, of detail. Yeah. And it's just, it's just something that you can go back and watch countless times because it is um such an escape and so yeah it'll always be a a favorite of mine and maybe we'll do more harry potter movies in the future maybe we'll i'll see when the other anniversaries are and we'll try to time them around then (laughs) um okay do you want to let everyone know what our next movie is going to be yes so my pick for next week is the writer that's R-A-D-E-R, not writer, um, by Chloe Zhao. And we've both seen Nomadland. Um, so I'm really excited to check this one out. I was reading the synopsis a little bit about what it was. And I'm interested to see if I can recognize her style between Nomadland and this one. Which I think she did the writer before Nomadland. Yes. All right. Well, if you all liked this episode if you like harry potter if you are a fellow ravenclaw or a hufflepuff or really you know any house we're fine with with all houses please go give us a five star uh rating and a review on apple podcasts we're also on spotify and google podcasts so you can subscribe to us there you can also follow us on our social media channels where we are at why the flick on instagram tiktok and twitter and you can go there to find me doing embarrassing tiktoks so (laughs) (laughs) that's it see y'all next week